0: Sure, ineffably sublime. <laughs> but I mean, we don't use language like that these days, do we? Ineffably sublime. When I sing a song like that, I just think, how can you not respond? How can you not, just the richness of the language to describe that, how amazing that is. That's so awesome. Thank you. Sure. Um, Yeah, I'm standing here this morning, and and sometimes when you come to preach the Word, you're in a bit of turmoil, and and I've said before, sometimes you come up and you think, is this what God wants, and you're in that state, and and this morning I woke up and I thought, I don't know whether I want to do it the way that I thought I wanted to do it, so I might just kind of like change it a little bit, but but I have a real sense this morning that that God is talking to me, I think firstly, and, 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 um, and to us as a church as well with what I want to say this morning, and so... I want to start off by just saying we live in stories. We all live in stories. Um, and that's really, really important because life gives us meaning and we have meaning in the context in which we find ourselves. I know Sting wrote a song, History Will Teach Us Nothing. Remember that song? I love Sting, but that's a song I don't love. Being a history major and a history teacher, history teaches a whole lot of stuff to us. And I, when I was growing up, I, as a boy, on our birthdays, we had this special tradition where, uh, after school, we would come home and had have cake, which my mom baked, and she was a fantastic cook. And my, the old ladies would come around, and so my granny, who had a, her license still, would bring Auntie Dolly. She's the one. Remember, I mentioned her, the brandy bottle under her bed and the three monkeys in her flat. The same Auntie Dolly, and they would come, and we'd have tea in the afternoon, and we'd have a birthday celebration. And why that's so special to me still is because it it rooted me in who I was, and I was part of something much bigger than just me. You see, it wasn't just me. There was something that existed before me, and there's something that will exist beyond me, and although I have a part to play in that story, it just roots me in in who I am. And sometimes we we hear people saying, well, I'm going off to find myself, you know, and I understand the concept that we need to go and find space sometimes just to sort of be alone and to meditate or or whatever, but we can't find ourselves by ourselves because we aren't ourselves by ourselves. We are who we are because we belong to the people around us. You know me because you've seen me and how I interact with you and other people, and so that's how I come out, is in my in my community in which I find myself. And... um, you're probably wondering, why am I starting with this? Well, I'm coming to a story in the Old Testament, which I want to launch off in and just challenge us as a, as a church community about our story as well. And the Old Testament narratives are histories, and I'm going to be looking at the story of Joshua as they enter into the promised land a little bit later, but they are stories in, in the Bible which can't be read in the same way as other parts of the Bible. And there's one of my favorite current theologians, Dr. Gordon Fee, wrote a book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, which maybe some of you have read. Fantastic. If you haven't, get hold of it. It's very easy reading, and it it brings out how when you're looking at histories or apocryphal writing or psalms or epistles, you you can't read them in the same light because they're written for different purposes. All God-breathed. So we don't deny that. But, but there's a different way in which we, we approach them, interpret them, and apply them. And so Gordon Fee says, when we come to Old Testament narratives, like the one in Joshua, there are two things he says that we should be doing. The first one, we ask a question and say, what is God, or what is being said about God in the story? Or what do we learn about God? As we read that story, what is being said, what do we learn about God in that story? And then the second question we need to be asking ourselves is, what is our human response to reading the story? And so as we enter into this, this morning, this uh, book of Joshua, those are the two things we need to come with that context. What, what, what do we learn about God? What's it saying about God? And then what is our response as a human being? So this isn't a once upon a time. When I was a boy, we used to have lots of once upon a time. And so my father used to sit on my bed at night and once upon a time, and then we'd go into Never Never Land about ponies without horseshoes, and that's why they could win races on soft ground and all sorts of Oh, I miss my dad. Okay, Um, it's it's not once upon a time. This is real. Some people would like us to believe it's once upon a time. Even theologians today would like us to believe, but it's not. This is real life. So before we get to Joshua, let's just back up a little bit because we sung in the first song about a covenant God. So God chose a person, Abram, Abram, who became Abraham, and He made a covenant with him, a promise. An agreement and the sign of that covenant, covenant was circumcision. Now I in my grade four and five classes currently in scripture, we're looking at the Abrahamic covenant and what a covenant is and of course circumcision and all the boys get fascinated by that concept. Um, but we, we're looking at the story of the Bible and what is actually the Bible's message and we're going on to how the new covenant and what's the difference, that's where we're going on to. But currently we're right here with, with Abraham and, and the sign was circumcision and God reached out Here we find a God who reaches out. So in the account of Abraham, we learn that God reaches out. He doesn't wait for us, but he enters into our realm, which he created. He's outside of time, he's outside of space. He created that space, and then he reaches out. And he made this beautiful covenant. And as a sign of that, he said to Abraham that the boys must be circumcised on the eighth day, and you will be a blessing to all nations, and you will receive a land. And God keeps his promises. And then the story progresses, and we have... Uh, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and the patriarchs, they get, get into slavery in Egypt and they're in bondage in Egypt and in that time God preserves his people. And then he uses Moses, he raises his, uh, him up in their plagues and of course it culminates in the Passover. Um, and then the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea where God shows his power and he separates the sea for them and says, come on, I'm looking after you because you are my covenant people. And then the people rebel. Isn't that so sad and so often the case? Even in that, the people rebel and the spies are sent into the promised land, which God had given them, and they came back. And for 40 40 years, rather, then these people had to wander around because of their unbelief and their rebellion. And then we find out that Moses is not going to lead the people into, or the Israelites into the promised land, but rather Joshua is going to do that. And even in that time, God provided for them. Manna. You, you know, even when they were rebelling, God provided. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, is now going to lead them in. I once heard somebody say that he's the first illegitimate person in the Bible, the son of Nun, Joshua. But um, anyway. So here we have the, the desert generation have died, and the next generation under the leadership of Joshua are ready to come into the promised land. And so I'll start reading in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Just get a sense of what's happening here. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, who is Moses' aide, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No one will be able to stand up against you. Isn't that amazing? You can taste the victory. These people are there. And before they've crossed over, God has already said, this covenant-keeping God who's protected them through supplying manna and, 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 has said to them, this is your land. Nobody will stand up against you. Then Joshua chapter 2 and 24, I'll just jump ahead a little bit as I paint this picture. It says, they said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Melting in fear. Yeah. Hey? These people are now, they, they're, cocksure, they're confident. They're there going, hey, these people are melting in fear. Surely God has given us this land. They're ready to go. We jump to Joshua chapter 4, 12 and 13. And it says the following. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over ready for battle. Notice, ready for battle. They were armed. In front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. There's a sense here of 40,000 people armed. These are young men. These are people who know that this is not their inheritance. These are people who God has said, I'm going to give it to you. The people that they were entering into, they were, they were melting in fear. They were armed. They were ready to move. Here they came. Joshua four nineteen 19 to 24. Let me carry on there. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Notice the passing on of the baton. Do this so that when your children come to you and ask you, why did we do this? You give them this response. There's a story here. There's something bigger. There's a history which teaches us something. Sorry, Sting. That this history is teaching these children that actually the God who separated the Red Sea separated the Jordan. There's a second chance being given to these people. Here's something else we're learning about God, a God of second chances. He opens the Jordan and he did this for you. Doesn't say go to the, your pastor or your Sunday school teacher or go to somebody else. It says go to your parents. And let's not miss that. Parents. There's a, a baton to be handed over. There's a story to be told to our children. And as I read this, I ask myself, what does it say about our spiritual journey, about our spiritual story? Are we living in a bigger story? Sereptons, are we living in a bigger story here? in our family, in our church, in our community. Just like this Israelite community could speak about the things of the past, there was a sense of a biggerness, of a story. And so I asked myself that, what story do we live in? Um, John Piper wrote a book, Future Grace, which I read quite a long time ago. But, but the basis of that book is saying we can trust in future grace because of past and present graces. And that's the sense of these stories of saying we can trust in future graces because of what God has done, this covenant keeping God. So in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 1, it says the following. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Wow, the battle is theirs. They have crossed over. They are now in enemy territory. About 2 million soldiers and civilians, or those 40,000 armed, ready to go. They had entered the land. They had now had a beachhead. Now, in military terms, a beachhead is a place from which you can work. You're in enemy territory. Once you've invaded, you land, you park there, you secure that place, and out of that you move. It's it's a place which is very insecure, though, because you're completely surrounded by the enemy still. So you need to make sure that you, you use this to its best, um, you know, for, for the benefit of where you're at. Any military commander now in this place would have been licking his chops. I'm sure um, Joshua would have been sitting here thinking, okay, we're in the land, got a beach here, these oaks are all busy, their hearts are melting, they're fearful, we're ready to go, bristling, all these young men, they want to take over. Now's the time to strike. When Nazi Germany invaded Poland in World War II, they went in there with such force and momentum that they just rolled people over. It was known as Blitzkrieg or, or lightning war, literally. And, and with their strength, they just people backed off and they rolled over them. Here is the time for Blitzkrieg right now. I look in there again and I think to myself as a church, what's, what's our beachhead? You know, we're in enemy territory. We're surrounded by the world. We know that. We've been told that. But we're not of the world. And we're the church, God's bride, sitting here. And, and I ask myself, so here we are. We, we are, have a beachhead ready to invade the enemy kingdom. What does that mean to us? What is that? Where, where are we invading? How, how must we move forward? But God had other plans. Listen to this. Verse 2 to 8 as we carry on. It says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcised the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Haralaf. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were military age when they left, Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. No! No! No, that's not the way you invade a country. You don't do that. I, I once heard a talk by Graham Cook. In fact, Norman, you might have, it was at the time when we were at Stellenberg Chapel together way back, and, and he spoke a little bit about this, and he, he painted a, a picture that went something like this. You know, they just arrived in the land, and there, all these young people ready to, to take their possession, and uh, let's call him Reuben and Rachel, his new wife, they, they pitch their tent, and they're ready to go. And Joshua calls them to a men's meeting. Tonight, men's meeting. And there's excitement. You know how it is. Yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to find tactic. We're going to get ready. And, and, and Rachel say, says to Reuben, well, I tell you what, you go off, and I'll make a nice little romantic supper so that when you get back, we can have some candles, and we can, we can enjoy this. So Reuben heads off, and there's a big tent pitched up there. And you can see all the men, and they're obviously carrying their weapons because they're surrounded by the enemy. And off they go to this tent and uh, there's, there's a lot of testosterone and energy, and they're all standing, Wah! and uh, Rachel puts the microwave, opens the chicken in the microwave, and she, she sets the, the, the table, and she thinks, oh, this is wonderful, and the men are waiting, and then Joshua stands up, and there's this silence that descends, and they're all waiting to hear, okay, how are we going to attack, which units are we going to use, who's going from which side, how's this going to work, and they think, this is strange, he's quiet, he's a military commander, he should be commanding us to be going now, from behind his back, he takes out a knife and he holds it up in the air and he says, Thus saith the Lord. And you can imagine how they would have responded to that. And meanwhile, Rachel back at the, at the ranch is going, Yeah, it's a bit late and he's taking his time. Why is he, why is he taking so long? And think, You know these men, I mean honestly, we at home preparing stuff for them. They're out having a, a, a time with God in the tent, honestly. And then she keeps getting a bit irritated and eventually she looks out. Oh yeah, they start coming. Something funny. Why are they walking like that? You know, what's going on? (laughs) Um, Just picture it. From from a place of, we're going to hit them, we're going, to, whoopsie, we're incapacitated. You don't incapacitate an army, especially not in that manner, before you enter into the promised land. So in, in the words of Dr. Gordon Fee, what does this teach us about God? God doesn't work like us. God's ways are far higher than our ways. And God's plans are not rushed. God's got time. He knows the right time. He knows when it is the right time. And He's going to do it in His way, not in our way. And we learn here that in the physical viewpoint, the Israelites saw it as a time to go and attack, as we would. But God looked in and He saw a spiritual reality in the camp. He looked at it with a different viewpoint and he saw some unfinished business that needed to be done in the camp. Because as we learned, the people who came out and as they wandered in the, in the wilderness, they weren't being circumcised as a sign of the covenant. They obviously didn't do the Passover because one of the prerequisites of, of doing the Passover was circumcision. And so we had a bunch of people here who were not ready to do God's purposes. And so God led them through three things. He, firstly, renewed the circumcision. Secondly, they then celebrated the Passover after that. God, in doing that, said, I've made a covenant with you. I've protected you. Are you in or are you out? Because before we move in here, I need to know whether you're in. You know, I probably would have gone, Hey, guys. This is it. We've got the momentum. Let's do this thing. We nail it. Once we've destroyed Jericho and everything else and we've got the land and we're no longer in a beachhead, but we control it, okay, let's consolidate after that. Okay, anybody need to be circumcised? No, 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 no. God says, before that, are you in or are you out? So they, they renewed the circumcision. They celebrated the Passover. And then there was an amazing thing that it says that they appropriated the land's produce. At that point, it stopped. The manna stopped. And the next day, they ate of the land. Isn't that beautiful? When they were brought into the land, renewed the covenant through circumcision, celebrated the Passover, that story and and, and God's goodness, and the next day they fed off the land and the manna had stopped. God is calling them to be holy. God is calling them to himself. He was calling them to be consecrated before any conquest could be happening as they moved out. But we know also from Deuteronomy that there's a circumcision of the heart that's needed. We don't live in this time. We live in a a far greater time. So although we're not called to circumcision, thank you, Jesus. um, We are called to circumcised hearts, to enter into the covenant by our hearts being open to God. And what God was saying at Gilgal was this. Before I fight your battles for you, you must have this mark of the covenant on your flesh and be committed to the covenant. Before I fight for you, you need to be in the right place. And then they celebrated the Passover, and I know we have a Passover supper here at times, and as a family, we found a fantastic book, which was very child-friendly, and it led you through the Passover meal, and we used to do that each year as a family. And just if you're looking even at the richness of that, the yeast being removed, which is the New Testament symbol of, of sin, out of the house beforehand, then sounding the shofar, um, uh, is a call to worship. And then the woman or the, the, the mother would light the candle, symbolizing that the, through a woman the light of the world came, came into the world. And then it's followed by the first cup, which was the, the cup of sanctification or the Kiddush. After that, washing of hands. James 4 verse 8 says, Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. And it's a time of coming to God and washing hands. As a family, we used to also wash feet at the same time. And then there was parsley and salt water representing the tears in Egypt, breaking of the, the, the matzah or the yachatz. And this part, I, I loved this one. Loved it. Because living outside and past the Passover, the Jewish people doing this have no idea what they're doing. Where the, the yachatz means unity. Three matzahs. Three matzahs. Notice what we've just been hearing about uh, earlier this year about the, the, the dance of the trinity. Three, and then the middle one is taken and broken and it's wrapped up uh, and, and it's hidden away somewhere and that's called the Afikoman which means he comes can you imagine a Jewish person finding their saviour and realising he's come already yeah. but part of that celebration and then we hid it away and then there's questions again the youngest child would ask questions notice the story, the baton being passed the questions about why do we do this what's this about, passing on that um, and then they talk about the plagues, and then the shank bone, which is a symbol of the Passover lamb. John the Baptist, 1,500 years after the first Passover, said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And he was calling the Jewish people to repentance. He was baptizing in the Jordan River where they crossed over into the promised land. In this same region, he was preaching a new message, and he was preaching an entry into the kingdom of God, not into a physical land. Then, after that, you seek out the yeast with a candle. We talk about the bitter herbs. Eat a mixture of of apple and nuts, which is a reminder of building clay, of of the time in slavery. Then a second cup of Thanksgiving, then the main meal. Then the part which I also used to love, and there was a little game, hide and seek, where kids used to run off and try and find Afikoman, which was hidden away. And then when you reveal that, using that and the third cup of redemption, you then have communion together. He says, bam, the African woman has come. And that's probably the cup that Jesus used at the Passover meal when they shared communion with his disciples, the cup of redemption. And then there's a cup of praise. So this is what they they went through without the understanding that we have um, now. But they were circumcised. They then did the Passover, and then they ate of the first fruits. Interesting that Jesus, in John chapter 6, his disciples come to him, and they they talk about... um, Show us signs which will like in the manna in the wilderness where it was provided was a sign. And he said, I am the bread of life. Anybody who comes to me will never hunger and will never thirst. He said, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. And so Jesus puts himself there and says, I am the bread of life. And so what is the story telling us? Let's go back to what I said in the beginning. It's revealing to us a God who is almighty. It's revealing to us a God who can split seas and send people over on dry land. It's revealing to us a God who's a covenant-keeping God. A God who enters into His creation, makes a covenant, and keeps that covenant. It's a God who gives second choices and says to His people, come, you, you've, you've messed up, but come, let's renew this covenant. Let's once again come into the place where, what I have for you. That's a God who is here right now. We sang that song about He doesn't have to come. Well, he is here all the time anyway, but he, but he comes in his glory when we come to meet with him. That's the God who is here with us. This is part of our spiritual story. As Gordon Fee says, he shows up amongst his people. We're not entering into a promised land. That's, that's something for the past. But God, I believe, is calling us to be consecrated to him. And he is... Calling us to new things. I've been so excited this year. I don't want to miss church because I'm going to miss out on what God's going to say to us. Because I've been so excited about what God's been saying to us. And I'm still trying to find the clarity of how it all clicks together. But there's something happening, people, here in Sarepta. God is saying something and he's directing us. And I believe what he's saying is, are we ready for it? Are we in the right spiritual place? Have we consecrated ourselves? everything could open, we could have the finances ready, we could have the property ready, we could be whatever he's called us to, we could move in, and it could be the wrong timing. And to step back and say, what is he calling us? It's not about doing stuff, it's about being. Who are we? He's calling us to be something. When, just before our boys were born, so that was 20, our oldest son turned 20 last weekend, so it was, in fact, it was 20 years ago, and I remember why. Sandy and I were part of a church, Jubilee Community Church, in Cape Town at the time, and at that time there was a whole um, the abortion debate, and it was being signed into law and all the rest. And as a church, we decided that we would set up a a, a, um, preg- a pregnancy centre for people who um, needed help, testing, counselling, practical help as well of you know nappies, um, temporary accommodation if they needed it, for mothers who who needed an alternative to um, the abortion that was busy coming in. And I remember at that time, God telling uh, the group of people, stop and pray. And, and we felt a little irritated because we wanted to go ahead with it. And for a couple of months, we had prayer meetings where we just just stopped and prayed and prayed and laid the foundation. And I remember it because Sandy went into labor with Joshua. <laughs> remember that? It was a Monday night and we are in the prayer meeting and then suddenly <laughs> 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 And we realized it was happening. So, but the point being here was there was something being launched. And God told us, step back, stop, pray this thing in first. Make sure that we're in the right time. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11 says the following. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Listen to that. In Christ, you, that's us, we have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What an amazing picture that is. That is just so awesome. Do we realize that? And this is my challenge to myself. Am I living in this space? If I, if I understood that concept, I've been circumcised in a different type of circumcision. I'm part of this covenant which God has made. Am I eating from the bread of life, Jesus himself? Not from pieces of matzos, but from the bread of life. Are we actually eating from the bread of life? Are our hearts circumcised? We've been baptized as a sign of the new covenant, eating the fruits of the kingdom. Those would be the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, etc. Eating of those. But here's the other thing, and I bring it back to where I started. This is not just about me and God. This is not just an individual thing. Sometimes I've heard people saying something like this. If you were the only person on the whole earth, Jesus still would have come and died for you. Now, I'm sure God's love is strong, and that's true. But if that's our total understanding of it, I think we have an anemic understanding of God's love. Because God died for the church. God came for his bride. And that's entering in to that church is one by one through faith in Christ. We, we, we're not, we don't get salvation through the church. We get salvation through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. So in that sense, that covenant is a, is a one by one. But, that's, but God didn't just die for me. He died for us. And He died for His church all around the world. And that's just such an amazing thing to, to think about. And what does that mean for us? Then surely we need to be, as a body here, as the where we find ourselves, we need to be looking and going, God, if You've died for us, how do we express that for Your glory? If, if we wake up on a Sunday and go, you know what, I could listen to this on a podcast. Maybe I can, I'll can. i rather go to the beach. Then we've missed it. So if you're listening to this message on a podcast next week, come to church. <laughs> come to church. Be here. We have to be here. Because we have entered into God's promises for us. We as a group, God has placed us in this darkness as a beachhead for Him. And He is saying to us, there's stuff for you to do, but first you've got to be. And are we being? I'm getting excited, as you can see, but I, it's just such a strong sense that, that I have of, of, of that we don't understand that. And I remember the time when I wasn't part of the church. Man, I don't want to go back there. Do you remember that time? And I remember the time when I became part of the church. And when there was crisis in my family at that time and when I was being delivered from a drug um, habit, people came around. Strangers arrived at the door, knocked on the door for a week, bringing meals. They'd never met us. Knock, knock. Hello, Mrs. Carroll. I am so-and-so. Part of the church where Brendan has just become part of. Here's a meal. Where eventually we had to go to the church and say, stop, please. It's wonderful. Just that love. Just being part of a, uh, of, of a, a group together. You know, we're living in times where I think our kind of therapeutic self-concern sometimes overshadows our knowing of God. Yeah, God loves us and He's so concerned for us, each one of us individually. I think we're living in a time where our spirituality, the sense of of, spirituality in all its forms, displaces theology on which it's built. I think we're also living in a time where we End-time escapism, and you have people now having to replot their, their plans for the end times even, sort of crowds out our day-to-day discipleship. Yes, we know where we're going, but actually day-to-day, today and every day, we need to live as if this is the day, rather than looking at how this thing's going to end up. I look at the church today, and I sometimes think that the church's marketing departments triumphs over their mission. just my perception of it. You know, we have references to opinion polls which outweigh our reliance on biblical exposition. We're so, we're so worried about, about what people think and democracy and how they, instead of coming back to going, what does God think about this? And what has God got God for us? There's so much talk about reinventing the church and the seeker-friendly church and the this and the that. And that's been replaced, or it's replacing prayer for Revival. And I think God is calling us to a space of saying, are you in or are you out? If you're in, be in, i.e. be present. Be part of. Seek me. Seek being in a place where you are spiritually connected to me. Let us pray for a revival. Let's not worry about how we look. Let's worry about how we are and who we are. And we're entering into a time where God is calling us to do business with him spiritually be consecrated to him before he leads us into conquest so that's in my heart this morning and i feel we need to respond to that this morning as well as a as a church and so i'm going to ask if the worship band can come up and and we're going to go into a time of worship as a response to this god is calling us god is calling us god has got stuff for us and i'm the first to put up my hand to say, when, when crisis hits, I try and think of every strategy possible. Admit. And God's saying, no, 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 no. When you're surrounded by your enemy, be circumcised. Even if it's the wrong thing. Come to me. Come to me. And so I think as we enter into this time of worship, let's just um, come before God. And let's respond to him in this way. Let's just say to God, God, here I am. If you're in that place, let's renew a sense of consecration to him. Let's seek out... Call on him for what he has for us here as a church, as the rector, as his bride here in this area where we find ourselves.